Hello, uh, welcome today to this week's episode of Frivolous Gravitas, where we will be uh, descending again into the world of economics. Uh, This today we'll be looking at uh, taxation, uh, specifically a form of taxation which we found quite interesting, uh, which is um, the idea that rather than taxing income or anything else, it's just consumption tax. You have a larger consumption tax on all the goods that you buy. Uh, And so we're going to be looking at that today. Uh, And uh, Chris will be leading the the conversation. Uh, So I'll uh, pass it over to you. Thanks, Jordan. And hello and welcome for Liz Gravitas. I'm Chris Driver, your co-host. And with me is Jordan Roy. Um, obviously, my other co-host, our other co-host. To start off, we're today's episode is sort of going to be talking about taxation in general, but um, we're going to be focusing on consumption taxes because there are several different um, brands, I guess you could say, of ideas behind taxing uh, only consumable goods as opposed to income and payroll and capital gains and all that kind of stuff. So we're, we're going to get into that too. Um, defining our terms first though, there are um, types of, of taxation more than we could even mention in, in this episode, obviously, but just for some examples, you've got um, city taxes and property taxes for, for, uh, uh, for a basis. And those generally are collected to pay for things like schools and roads and uh, fire pla- firehouses and police stations and things like that. Uh, social services that even if you never call 911, you still want them to exist. You still want there to be firemen and police officers available on call. You want a 911 call center to be operating just even if you don't have to ever dial it. Uh, Those things cost money, obviously, and one way of paying for it is through taxation of people who are uh, affluent enough to own their own properties. Um, Some people think that renters don't pay property taxes, but it's absolutely included in part of the rent. So (laughs) that's just a fallacy. Even if you're not paying it personally out of pocket, someone who owns some property who you're renting from absolutely does pay for property taxes. So like in my case where I don't have children, um, but I did have a condo, paying property taxes to pay for school and roads and I don't drive. So, you know, it would, it would be ignorant of me to suggest that my property taxes should not have covered roads and schools just because I don't use them or benefit from them directly. Um, as we talked about in our relativity episode last week, um, it's all relative to the scope that you look at. So if I want to live in a city that has educated people so that when I go order coffee, they give me the right change back, I want to make sure those kids have education so that they can count the change. So I do want schools for other people's kids. Just I don't have my own. So we need to stop thinking selfishly about where our taxes are going because it's the aggregate of the whole. The organization of a large society is what gives us all these fringe benefits that we come to know and love and enjoy on a daily basis. Right. The chagrin usually should lie with uh, when a yacht is bought instead of an ambulance. Um, it's how it's used and not like, it's like, yes, well, why, why should I get a, well, you hear a lot of people near um, Selkirk in that area because they have a lot of 
those um what do you call those uh the the beach houses a lot of the taxes to that goes to the local school so all the schools in that area north of winnipeg are fabulously um yeah. have all the courses that i could have only dreamed of you know um and uh i remember in my high school we didn't have physics program which um I wanted to do physics because I thought it was cool, but you know, no chemistry this year or this four years. Um, so that felt good for me, but like, we all understand the necessity of a school. We all understand the necessity of uh, roads, you know, uh, and I think you made a great point there. And yeah, I've, I've always felt that where you put your energy, if you're going to complain should be in when it's, you're not getting, when your schools aren't up to snuff, when your school is, uh, when your roads have potholes, even though you specifically see the budget for your, uh, municipality. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. and, and along those lines too, it's like, um, it's considering the greater good you get as a whole from a functioning society. So like, even if we're not independently millionaires we do want to live in a country where it's possible to be a millionaire like we do like capitalism mm -hmm. so it's it's not this black and white thinking we're saying um all 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 taxes are evil or all consumption should be taxed it's not at all what we're getting at here um we're we're going to go through a couple ideas that that senators and house representatives and stuff through the states have have put through and i think there's some examples in other countries i might you might be able to dig up while i'm while mm -hmm. i'm talking about it but uh, as other examples of not using, uh, <clears throat> uh, like for an ind individual not using the, the, the social amenities that their taxes are going to fund, um, other good examples of this, like when you brought up the, uh, the beach houses and stuff is, uh, for example, during COVID, if a hospital in a small boonie town is overwhelmed, because of vacationers coming up there and then staying up there because they're not at work. Um, there, there's one argument to be made to say that they overspent on their schools and not enough on their hospitals, but without being able to foresee a pandemic and a whole bunch of people out of work going to their cottages and then staying there and then using local hospitals, um, those, those communities are particularly vulnerable because of all the travel from its residents. So if you have a community of a hundred houses, but each of those hundred houses has households coming from different areas of the country, different parts of the city. You're sort of expanding the bubble of exposure towards a pandemic virus in this case, like COVID. So that that's just one example. But one of the other taxations that I think that we should get rid of, and this is just a personal opinion, um, is capital gains. And the reason why I would suggest that is because capital gains on in theory makes sense, but in practice it doesn't. Because what it does is it discourages people who are able to avoid paying themselves through a wage. So only the people who are rich enough to own corporate entities for themselves where they can, you know, partition so, their, their income into dif uh, different differing um, points of remuneration, such as uh, stocks or shares or options or for the um, layman like this guy uh, who has heard of capital gains tax, you know, you hear it in the news. Um, could you? Uh, and that's what I'm describing right now. Yeah. Is so, there? Um, so is it like um, it, it's tax on investment income as opposed to earned work income per hour? 
Oh, okay, that's what, that's exactly what, what I wanted do, to hear. Yeah, what makes it different though is it's on any capital assets that appreciate in value. So it counts for stocks and bonds and debts that people owe you that you're charging interest, uh, property appreciation if your house goes up in value. So there's all kinds of things that aren't considered like wage income and they're taxed differently. And the reason that they do it, or I'll, I'll tell you how they're taxed. Basically, essentially they take, if you make a hundred thousand dollars, cause uh, let's say you buy a house for a hundred grand and sell it for 200 grand and you didn't spend anything on it or whatever, just a simple example. Uh, instead of taxing you on, a, on the hundred thousand dollars you earned on the appreciation from the buy time to the sell time, um, you would only be taxed on 50% of that income. And that's why they call it capital gains, like something separate from wage or, or other income earned. Uh, it's specifically so that only half of it is taxed. So instead of being taxed 40,000, like if, if your tax margin is 40% on a hundred grand, you'd be taxed $40,000 on the money you made. Whereas capital gains would then reduce that by half. So you'd make a hundred grand, but instead of paying 40,000 in tax, you'd pay 20,000 in tax. So you walk away with $80,000 in cash, taxes paid. Whereas the wage earner or the income, uh, low income earner or whatever, they're taxed at whatever tax bracket they're at for their salary. But generally, if you're making over $40,000, $50,000, you're in a 36 to 40% tax bracket, but the entire thing is taxed. Plus there's EIA tax, plus there's payroll tax that your employer pays and on and on and on. So essentially the idea of capital gains is to stimulate people's investments. They wanted to stimulate people buying homes. So they gave them capital. And then what that actually caused though, is people flipping homes because it was, you'd take home more money flipping a house than working an hourly wage, buying and selling houses. Right. So you get turned into an industry basically. So you helped because it just made the hurdle to get from the lowest tax bracket to the third tax bracket where you're actually paying taxes uh, harder to get. So it made it easier to stay rich and harder to get, you know, into a place where you can invest. And what's even worse though, is it doesn't just incentivize people to stay rich. It makes their wealth multiply faster than if they didn't. So they Mm -hmm. can do less and less productive work and retain more and more of the money they make from it. Right. And it's all the individuals who are working hourly wages that suffer for it because they end up being the ones that are paying the bulk of the taxes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll get into some of the false statements and claims that people make over the numbers and figures in just a bit. But I wanted to uh, to run over a couple examples of the types of taxes we pay that we don't really think about, too. So um, payroll tax is another big one. I'm not crazy familiar with it. I just know that it has to be paid and there's a formula for it that my accounting well, software- We're all familiar is. with it. <laughs> What's that? We're all familiar with it. Yeah, <laughs> but it's secret because like the employers pay for it. So until you're an employer, you don't really ever know how much payroll taxes are going out unless you're watching uh, like um, business news and stuff like Bloomberg or, or a BNN or something. So- Um, Some of the proposals they put forward are strictly to abolish all income taxes altogether. Um, This is the subject of our our conversation today is about consumption taxes, which is premised on rather than taxing income tax and having all these complicated laws with loopholes and thousands of pages of amendments and, you know, changes and, and whatnot that nobody can like realistically go through on their own. It's not accessible to the general public who are being taxed. So in my opinion, that's an, a sign of an ineffective 
um, policy or practice in government. If the people can't be engaged or involved with their own taxation because it's too complicated, you're just enabling the people who know and giving an industry to uh, to people of, of, of like special uh, knowledge of it. Do you know what I mean? So like the experts are the only ones that can really manipulate and, and work the system. So you have to hire an expert. Yeah. And then you, you develop an industry of paying people for non-productive work because all they're doing is going around looking for ways to not pay tax for you. And that's like, they make their money back in spades, hiring accountants and lawyers to do this type of thing. And the advantage is to people who own corporations because they can split up and divide shares and pay themselves with shares or options to keep themselves always in the lowest brackets. Whereas people who are earning a wage, if they somehow have a big year working overtime and doing side jobs, they get dinged twice as hard for earning more money in one year, working twice as much than somebody who, say, flipped a house and sold the house to somebody who's working that extra job to pay for their down payment on their house. They're the ones paying that appreciation on the house that you get to not pay taxes on, essentially. Um, and the reason why I say not pay taxes at all is even though there's capital gains and you made 100 grand, you walk away with 80 and you're supposed to pay 20, you can write off uh, $20,000 worth of expenses on a house easily. You can call it a business investment and just plug the money into your corporation and let it sit there and do nothing with it. Um, you, you can issue uh, life insurance policies that pay you back after a certain amount of time or, you know what I mean? There's all types of little instruments that you can put your money around so that you can avoid taxes. Whereas the individual, all they can really do is well, not can, but all they're able to do without uh, a deeper knowledge of the tax code and, and what's best for them. They can either hire an accountant, which generally they'll pay more for than they'll get back in their taxes because they don't earn enough. They're not getting millions of dollars of deductions. They're only getting, you know, a few thousand here or there. So you can't pay 20,000 to an accountant to save two grand. It doesn't really make sense. Right. But for somebody who's pulling in 250,000, they can pay 20 grand to a, a lawyer and an accountant to do their taxes and save yeah. maybe 80,000 from it. So, like I was lucky I married into a family with a ton of accountants in it. Um, that is and, handy. Yeah. Yeah. It is very handy. Uh, and um, I've, so we, we, we let them do our taxes and it's uh, some of the magic that they've pulled. Uh, it's like, Oh, you've got this going on and you're paying for tuition. You're paying for your rent. And oh, we got, cause they know all the little things that are going on and all the little things to make sure that we're paying, you know, it's, it's not like it's, I can't even say that we're cheating the system. You know, we're, we're getting what is, uh, what we should be getting based on how we're submitting our taxes. So I, they're, the government's not exactly making it. They're letting people fail at, uh, doing their taxes in order to, oh no, they gave us too much or they didn't, they didn't, you know, uh, file their tuition. And, uh, even though we have this tuition program where they do, they're not exactly making it easy or, or accessible, uh, for the average citizen because then they get more money. Uh, and then you rely on accountant. Now you can say, well, the accountants are just out to, you know, they, 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 they thrive in a, in a complicated tax market, but, taxes are inherently complicated um but they don't really have to they have to be byzantine um 
So you're- that's exactly what it comes down to. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. It, it's that they're, they're overcomplicated, needlessly overcomplicated. And they've created an industry of experts that can exploit that complication, but they're not productively contributing to society in the sense that they are productively contributing that they're offering services and labor for money that is economically stimulative. Right. And not, uh, someone like me who doesn't want to, well, someone like me who doesn't really want to deal with numbers and money and someone like I, I see the value in going to someone who can, um, you know, who thrives in that, you know, the, the, the realm and the world of numbers and, and exchange. Um, but at the same time, the, the, you have all this, and even if you have a less Byzantine uh, tax sector, the tragedy of the commons still comes into it, where we've been kind of explaining this, where if you're on the bottom, you're stuck on the bottom and it compounds your, 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 your problems. Um, but at the same time, um, like I slowly worked my way up, I guess, but like pulled you. Yeah, so part up. of it is a necessary evil, but yes, a necessary evil to it is the fact that these, uh, these, like for instance, the Canada Revenue Agency or the IRS or whatever in the states, the more top complicated your tax code, the more you have to pay as a government for employees to manage and regulate taxes. So as a residual expense, just from looking at it from the top down you can already see a giant inefficiency if you've got a tax code that not that's not even accessible to the the representatives of the tax department of the government do you know what i mean yeah so you have this the the the, the more complicated your taxes the larger your infrastructure but you know some people do like the idea of a larger government and it kind of there are those who also see um the government itself as a kind of a social make work program the more people that are in government the more people are employed so well we have this many people working and so the complicated tax system or you know the extra committees or whatever you have to just it keeps people employed with benefits so is it actually a bad thing Yeah, and it's kind of hard to say like in broad terms too, but as we dig into it, it should be a little bit clearer, hopefully. So what we're not saying is that taxation is bad. Um, implicit to any social organization or society that you, you want to you get the benefits of like access to markets and security and fire protection and, you know, insurance. I think we talked about a bit in also a Also to episode. regulate... Um uh, like malevolent behavior, like in the market itself. Like I, I'm for a free market, but I'm also not like, I'm also for making sure people don't cheat um, in a way they use it irresponsibly. And uh, I'm also for um, certain measures against, you know, just dumping pollution in people's backyards because it's cheaper. Uh, oh. Like the government, like I, I do have problems with government, but I don't think that there isn't a place for it in our society. In fact, it is a very necessary thing. And it does, and there are people that work there and they need to be paid and they do services and they hire things like, you know, firemen, policemen, you know, uh, in our country, uh, Medicare professionals. Um, and 
these are things like we can't just, well, it should be free. Uh, no, <laughs> these are people working and they're doing good jobs. We need like they need to be able to eat and they need shelter because they have dreams outside. Just, oh, man, I love working in government. Bah, bah, bah. Like, yeah. So and, uh, and a big part of it with like the public is there's no cheating if it's in law, right? If the loophole is already written there, that means that there was a group of people who are highly educated and, you know, elected representatives who are developing these rules and regulations to allow people to make these tax exemptions and write-offs. And they're doing it with good intent, but they're doing it based on bad data, usually. What they're doing is they're overcomplicating a system which costs more money, but the relative... Um, cost of it being expensive slightly, but residually every year in perpetuity, as there are more and more changes to the tax code, that becomes a huge burden to bear on the taxpayers just to have people regulate something that's so overcomplicated that every single person has at least once in their life probably had to call the tax center. Um, that wouldn't happen if taxes were collect collected based on consumption because the sales tax itself would directly be a receipt of payment and it would directly be sent to the government by the operating business. So business wouldn't stay in business very long and it would be easy to detect fraud from them uh, if they're not reporting their sales taxes. And then they would be on the hook, the corporation, not an individual who can go bankrupt, but a corporation um, mm -hmm. who's probably holding on to assets or or distributing its its cash reserves in, in its own ways to to avoid paying taxes yeah. or it's storing the money offshore, which is an, another huge problem. It's repaying. Well, we've said this before on this channel where it's, you know, if people are suffering and dying, that's not okay. But if corporations die and the new ones come up and hire those people, that's all right. Exactly. Like, it's yeah. better if corporations die than people dying. Um. <laughs> and so hypothetically, in the way I see it, is if you have a, a bunch of highly educated individuals working on tax code right now and, and they all lost their jobs because we changed over to a consumption tax, what that means from an economics point of view, like they're still employable. Those people still have transferable skills. Accounting and taxation is very important for any any company. They just they wouldn't have to be as expert. They would have an easier job. That's all. So um, they would actually also be contributing to part of the economy rather than just contributing to the regulation of it, which is again more stimulate more stimulative. But it's not as easily quantifiable as just like I was saying with the cost of adding on amendments and changes to the tax code. Okay, so um, before we, I want to kind of silo move into uh, actually looking at uh, this consumption tax. But before that, uh, now if you simplify the tax code um, and you get, uh, you know, you, in the, your company is paying tax based on uh, the stuff they buy for. Um, uh, well, essentially, your company's paying less tax. I think this, my question actually can be answered later when we get into it, because my thought is, well, what keeps, how will the money impact the, the money saved impact the regular person? But I think this is the larger question of this entire discussion anyways. So, mm -hmm. um, And that sort of falls into um, one of the common traps when people are arguing for or against the fair tax is they make these broad assumptions and they don't even realize they're making the assumptions. Um, one example of this is uh, they assume people won't buy things if there's a huge tax on it. 
But in my experience, everybody who wants to make money and earns money and has money, they have it because they want to spend it. (laughs) Their quality of life doesn't improve just having money and sitting on it. Yeah, they might do it for a year or two, but once logic overrules their irrationality, they'll realize that they'd still rather have a yacht than not if they can afford one. So people will still buy the things they want and they'll still want to get rich so they can buy the things they want. There's nobody who's just not going to work because they could make a, a, you know, eggs and bread is free. Like people would still rather eat more than eggs and bread every day. <laughs> right. And I think this is also worth noting that this is not the full solution to the worst problems. It's just a, uh, it's just a potential top down solution to one problem. Whereas, you know, you have these people who I want to buy a yacht when I get rich, I'm going to do this. And the, they're also at the same time, we need a bottom up uh, solution, which is, you know, people thinking about how they're spending better. It's like, do you really need that yacht? Do you really need to spend money to make people miserable because you were miserable when you were poor or something like that? Um, Like, Oh, I didn't have six TVs. So now I have a TV in every room. It's like, yes, you can do that. But is that really what you want? Like, um, and so again, this comes to the individual, how are you using your money Uh, and being cognizant of that also would help um but right now we're looking at the top down um and i think yeah, it is worth noting of approach like you said yeah i think i think it was worth noting that this is you know one thing isn't going to solve all our problems but uh because we are all you know individuals in this together but at the same time the thing that we put over us to do our paperwork the government um is you know does need to function efficiently when it functions efficiently you know like people don't even need to think about it uh it's like oh the government oh whatever i don't care i'm gonna i'm doing my i'm working my living my life when the government's not working properly you get well just kind of look past the 49th parallel down to the south and you'll see so yeah exactly uh, you'll see what's going on. Um, and there's a lot of stuff there. And I don't think it's worth getting into right now. A lot of other people are talking about that. Um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll try and stick to specifics at least at first, just so that we all get a, like um, a firm grounding on sort of what we're discussing. And so basically the consumption tax in premise, and there are many of them, there's like the fair tax and uh, I don't know the names of them all, to be honest, but there are different ideas or brands or um, ways of going about a consumption tax rather than an income tax, like to replace the income tax. And one of the, uh, one of the, or I guess the overarching ideology behind all of them though, is to replace income tax itself. For one, it's too convoluted. So it's expensive just to regulate and manage it. It's expensive to process it and file it. So those expenses are, hard to quantify, but they are being paid by all of us, regardless of whether you even work or not. As a citizen, just existing in this country and contributing to the the economy by buying a coffee here and there, you're participating, whether you know it or not. Um, So reducing complication is one. The other side, um, the other major question to it is, um, after you've reduced complication, how do you set the tax for consumption? So some of them want to say overtax luxury goods, not tax foods, and then sort of mediumly tax 
uh, like services, like foods and bars and okay, and so this would be like non-essential goods and stuff. so I'm kind of looking at um, a bit of a list here. So that would be kind of a an excise tax or a sin tax, um, sin tax, not sin tax. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, so you we have this in Canada where we tax heavily um, alcohol, tobacco, uh, gasoline fossil fuels are now taxed uh, but ironically we don't tax gambling but the states does so it's kind of funny how we do that <laughs> yeah i think because the government runs lotteries up here um mm. so you know you have the um the a lot of hospitals run uh what do they call them like the the lottery where you win a million dollars and half of it goes to the um the 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 hospital or something. Yeah. Like and the charity drives and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple others, uh, sales tax, which we are all familiar with. I don't really need to explain that one. Um, well, we should note though, there are several types of sales taxes that are already in place. So mm -hmm. there's like provincial sales tax, uh, GST, like goods, harmonized HST, GST, HST goods, yes. harmonized sales tax. Uh, the UK and like Europe has a, a VAT, a value oh, it's a value-added tax. tax. That was the other one I was going to get into. Yeah, the VAT tax and stuff. So, so there, are, there are types of sales taxes too. Yeah, I only have to pay one sales tax in Alberta, <laughs> which actually everyone loves in Alberta because we have 6% tax instead of 14 mm -hmm. uh, on everything we buy, which makes it easier to buy stuff and goods travel quickly. But um, the government is in an extreme bout of austerity, uh, which is making it so that um, a lot of schools and uh, memory institutions, which I work in, are being hard hit. Um, so this uh, now... And does any of that really affect the like how much bacon you buy or if you need a soccer ball? Like, are you not going to buy a soccer ball in, in Winnipeg because Manitoba has a provincial sales tax of 7%? Like... It, is goods are noticeably cheaper here. Um, Would your buying patterns change if you're living there? Probably not. No, because it's consistent, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and sort of I getting haven't... on with the sales taxes though, it's like, this is the trap we fall in when we start, like, it sounds all well and good pie in the sky to say we should abolish all, all uh, income taxes and replace it with a consumption tax. But as soon as you start trying to regulate the types of consumptions, you're picking and choosing what's a sin, you know, like tobacco is obvious, but like gambling is not so obvious. And what constitutes gambling is buying add-ons like figures for your Fortnite character on a video game, mm -hmm. uh, loot boxes and stuff. Is that like, should we be taxing loot boxes if kids are just playing games, but it's considered gambling in some countries. And yeah, so well, there's another one here in the trap that we're trying to replace. We're trying to stop the income tax because it does that. And there's yeah. tiers and stratas and, and all these complications. And then we go into a sales tax and say, well, let's just flat tax. Well, people got to be able to afford food. So we'll make one exemption for food. And then it's like, well, nobody really needs a $20 million yacht. They could do with a $10 million yacht. Let's tax luxury goods in excess of you know, $10 million at a higher rate. And once you start getting into all these little nitpicky things, it's really easy and simple at first but it gets complicated very, very quickly because once it's rolled out and in government, all they're going to do is spend their time amending it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, going to keep adding things to change it and make new quotas. And yeah, it's like going into a bush and you see a nice, you know, 
curated trail and you turn left like at the uh, 10 meters in and it's just 60 trails and they're all it's like they're all terribly frightening yeah and that's sort of how our income tax code got complicated because in the beginning we wanted to say look if people don't make more than 20 grand or 10 i guess it was closer to 10 grand back then uh, we should only tax them 13 percent on their income and if they make up to 30 grand then we'll tax them 20 percent if they make up to 50 grand we'll tax them 30 30 percent and then the highest bracket used to be like 40 percent or something like that mm-hmm. but like corporations used to be taxed at a higher rate because they were dealing with huge sums of money and they had the cash on their balance sheets to to afford it there's absolutely no way they couldn't but once they started competing for tax havens that's when companies started not paying taxes anywhere. So the money didn't even go back into circulating into the government coffers. It just avoided them entirely. And then to stimulate the economy, what they did was they, they cut taxes more to try and grab more business. And you see this with like Amazon, like when they're looking to open up a distribution depot somewhere, all these cities with people who are unemployed in the States are like begging them to set up shop and they're giving them incentives to like, get cheaper land and not pay taxes for five years on, on their land. And because they're supposedly hiring all these people and creating jobs, right? Yeah. Every city in, in North we, America was doing that. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> bending over backwards and saying, you don't even need lube. And, and it doesn't take much to stand back and look at the insanity of it because what you're doing is Amazon put businesses out of business that were perfectly sustainable on their own. And their supply chains and everything like that are so optimized that they don't need highly skilled labor. So what you're doing is you're underemploying a huge number of people. You're giving them a tax incentive to, to, to come there in the first place. And then they have no requirement or obligation to stay there or make money afterwards. So what they do is they just pop up and move, pop up and move, pop up and move, because that's what businesses have to do. They're mandated to seek a profit. And if they have the option of moving operations to the city next door, to stimulate the economy and add jobs, they're just going to fire everybody and move or they'll right. open up a new center based <clears> on <throat> all the, the small businesses they've already displaced. So yeah, the jobs numbers go up and the politicians and, and everybody looking and the statisticians are looking at the numbers saying, you know, we created jobs this year. Thanks to we, we enticed Amazon to come to our city and build up a, a fulfillment procurement depot or whatever they call them. Um, but those jobs are people who are paying the least amount of taxes because they're, they're shit jobs. <laughs> like yeah, those people aren't waste- able to contribute more. Well, and they end up wasting those jobs, end up wasting those people's time too. So you're making right. 10 it's a bucks waste an hour or whatever the experience. minimum is nowadays. Like, and you're working that for you know, 14 hours a day or like a, either way you're, you're exhausting yourself for uh, very little. Um, now, uh, I remember doing it myself. I educated myself and got out of it. But at the same time, that's not an excuse. Just, you know, work hard and get out of it. Well, we should all be working hard to try and get out of uh, a worse circumstance. But that's if you're exhausted at the end of the day, you know, you need calories and you need rest before you can put time in because studying takes time and getting better takes time. And when all your time is being spent in a job, that's not giving you anything but a paycheck uh, and maybe cardio, uh, then, um, well, yeah, I used to work tables like wait tables and I was exhausted by the day. There's no studying I could do. I wrote some terrible papers. Um, but it allowed me to, uh, 
keep my apartment that I was in, but I was kind of wasting my time. I should have been looking for uh, entry-level jobs in my field internships, but you know, I was too tired to even look. So, uh, uh, but that's in hindsight. I, I always know what I should be doing in hindsight. Um, so, and it's easy for me to say. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> but I mean, it's different for everybody too, because some people have different abilities, right? Some people don't have the ability to get a degree and work at the same time. Right. They need more time to learn things. And right. We don't. We're not all. Uh, we can't all just. If we're given a chance, we can't all just succeed. I'm sorry, that's not how the world works. But yeah. that doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying. Yeah, uh, that's... And I don't want to digress too, too much into like no. meritocracy and stuff, because that's probably ready for a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's a couple episodes. Yeah. <laughs> but fun- fundamentally, people who are willing, able, and put in the effort should be able to get out. And that was the intent even when the original income tax laws were implemented. And the evidence of that is the tier structures that we just talked about. Right. Um, so to keep ourselves going forward, I, wanna, uh, I want you to comment on a few things. So we talked about sales tax, excise tax, and you know, sin tax. Um, but uh, you mentioned value tax, uh, value added tax or the VAT tax, which uh, shows up in a lot of the Commonwealth, it seems. Um, and I use the Commonwealth not as a, uh, political body, but just as a, uh, these are the places where it is. Um, so, uh, could you explain to me what's the difference between a value added tax and a sales tax is? No. Okay. <laughs> Cause I'd, I'd like to, but I'm not qualified enough to make those distinctions. So okay. I'd rather avoid it entirely. Okay. Essentially, it works sort of like a sales tax in the sense that it's it's a taxation that's imposed and paid at the moment of the transaction of the purchase. So that's sort of why I'm lumping it together with these is because it's not like an income tax that's withheld from you from your employer. And it's not like a capital gains tax that you report later on and pay later on. It's something that's charged at the point of sale. Okay. Sort so of the, the relative distinction between um, that I'm group, grouping it with other sales taxes. So it says uh, applies to the market value added to a product or material at each stage of its manufacture. So it's like an know. import or a duty, but it's also part of sales and supplies. So yeah. it applies to some manufactured goods, but not others, depending on where the point of sale is. So it's, okay. a, it's a bit of, I don't, oh. I, I haven't memorized it. So it's okay. Bit. So um, the other one was like get into though is some, some data from the federal reserve, just, just to give us some ideas okay. mentally on, on what uh, it's just going to be a bunch of numbers. So I'll try and run through it for the people who aren't interested, but for those who are uh, relativity and ratios is what we're looking at. So the, the actual numbers are not important. What's important is relatively to um, the baseline number that we're using and for this, I'm going to use a 20, 2010 data just because it was easy to get a whole bunch of family income averages and blah, blah, blah from that. So the family, the average family income from 2010, according to uh, Fraser Institute, um, was $72,393. So that's the number that I'm going to start deducting all these other taxes off. And I'll give you the percentages that I've already pre-calculated just so it's, it's easier. So you don't have to memorize the numbers, but they're there if you want to check them. 
family income, we should state that uh, two income households are relatively new to society. We used to only have one income household and one minimum wage job used to be able to buy somebody a car in, in one paycheck. So things are noticeably different now and cars are much, much safer. So it's not an apples to apples comparison to say, uh, oh, well, a minimum wage earner today should be able to buy a car in, in a two week paycheck, just like they used to. Right. They didn't have, have 12 airbags and Bluetooth and, you know, self-parking and. Right. And, and I have breaks. the entire like it's not that it's not unreasonable for uh, even the poorest citizens to get access to the compound, the complete knowledge of humanity, uh, right. even if they have to go to the library every day to do it. Yeah, before you had to be rich enough to buy an encyclopedia set that was up to date. Right. <laughs> People would sell old encyclopedia sets if they couldn't afford them. And right. It was a different world that we were comparing to. But I think so, 2010 is a good starting point. Everyone wants a house, but the fridge in your like your house is more capable now and you know is better heat resistant materials and it's got all this and that and, and more and there's no lead paint there's no asbestos there's no radon there like all these safety things that we we've, we've also put in like um attic spaces and airflow especially where we used to have mold and everything and everybody's house had mold in it and you're breathing in spores just from the air recirculating in the winter yeah but that was just commonplace before. And now we have a higher life expectancy because we've eliminated a lot of that out of the construction or through um, monitoring and regulating construction practices. So um, just for simplicity's sake, I'm going to call it 70,000 and that's a family income. So that could be two income earners or it could be one wealthy earner, but that average is also very much skewed by uh, high end wealth. So when we talk about high-end wealth, I, I'm not saying like, oh, the 1% and whining around. I'm talking about like the actual 1%, like people who have hundreds of millions of dollars in assets, like people who could buy countries, <laughs> that kind of wealth. Um, they're skewing the whole average up higher just individually of entire families below them. So these numbers are averages, but keep in mind, income disparity is a real thing and that's measured and there's tons of data on it if you really wanna, wanna check it out. Well, I'll give you a couple examples, for instance. And in the States in 2019, like the median income for white people was 188, or wealth, sorry, was 188,200. That's like entire net wealth, almost 200 grand. But the mean, the average of all white males or white people, I should say, their net worth was uh, or their net, their family net worth was nine hundred eighty three thousand dollars. So comparing the median at one hundred eighty eight thousand and the mean at nine hundred eighty eighty three thousand, you can tell there's a huge disparity of just the people who have access to that kind of quantity of capital. Uh, for Black people, it was much much worse. It was twenty four thousand one hundred was the median family net worth. $24,000 for the entire family, all the money they own. That's the median. But the mean was 142,500, which is dramatically lower than the 983,000 of white people, but you know, it's not nothing. And I mean, Hispanics are somewhere in between. It's like 36,000 is the median family net worth and 165,000 is the mean. So you can see how much these numbers get skewed based on the highest and lowest um, brackets of, of net worth and valuation in, in an economy um, from the consumer's perspective. So getting back to our Fraser Institute, average family income of 72,000. Um, this is for 
Canada, then I would assume. Yeah, Fraser Institute's Canadian. Um, family income tax paid was roughly $9,500. So it's about 13%. Um, family health, EI and CPP, those types of contributions came out to about 5,873, which is about 8.4%. Uh, family sales tax paid on all the goods they bought. And this is sort of what we wanna highlight for today's conversation. The, the sales tax paid by these same families who paid 13% uh, in income tax and 8% in health, EI and CPP combined, um, Canada Pension Plan, uh, for those who are not familiar. The sales tax paid by that family is $4,532, which is roughly 6.26%. And then there's a bunch of others that we're sort of not gonna get into just because it makes it too complicated to have 15 variables rather than just using the top four for relative sake, um, because the numbers are broad enough in, in their expense that uh, it illustrates the benefits and cost savings you would get from a consumption tax versus an income tax just by using the biggest numbers. You don't even need all the details of the smaller ones, but I'll give them just for people who want it. Property tax paid, 3,400. Auto, auto and gas taxes, $763. Um, family paid for profit taxes of like small businesses or anything like that uh, was 2,600. Family spent on liquor, cigarette taxes, and amusement came to $1,700 on average. But again, smokers pay more in tobacco tax than non-smokers. So those numbers are very skewed when you try and average them because it's just a binary. You either smoke or don't. And yeah, if you smoke, I've, you smoke. <laughs> I've never paid any tobacco tax. So, right. so uh, averages are misleading, and I don't want to, I don't want to understate that. I really want to make sure people understand that just because you read an average or hear an average on TV, it does not mean that it's absolutely valuable. It just means that it's a relative value when you're trying to discuss something as a right. So just because there's a, just because CNN puts up a, a number, you know, that's the number that they're using for this conversation. This isn't the number that controls the economy. Yeah. <laughs> and so long as you're not reading the reports they're getting it from, you, you can't possibly know that they're not misreading it either. You just sort of have this trust and faith that they're not, but they never read it properly, which drives me nuts as a data scientist. Like for example, they had one study from the Federal Reserve that said that uh, only 61% or something like that, 60% of, uh, of families could, uh, could pay for an unexpected bill of $400 out of either a cash or checking account or savings or something like that. So what the media did was they said 40% of Americans can't afford an unexpected medical bill of $400. Yeah. I remember those numbers coming out and I was like, the reality is, is that what, me? <laughs> what that number meant was people would have to use their credit card to pay for that bill. So not all of those uh, people couldn't afford it, but the way it's presented and I, I fell into this trap too. I'm perfectly guilty of it from time to time. Um, I've quoted that statistic before too, but it, it's not, it's not accurate to say that they couldn't afford it if they could. <laughs> so using those numbers though, getting back is we're paying about 13.25% in income tax, family income tax over the entire household. And most of that burden is actually higher for the lowest income people. That percentage will be higher necessarily for people who have less money than people who have more and aren't, or, and are, you know, moving their money offshore or putting it into tax write-off. Is this um, because 13.2% uh, uh, is 
uh, you know, you kind of need that 13.2% more when you're poor, uh, rather than, you know, 13.2% of a billion dollars is who cares. Um, it's sort of just how it's structured. So like, if our, our bottom income tax bracket, I'm just using numbers off the top of my head because I can't remember exactly, but uh, in Canada, if you only make nine $9,000, the federal government doesn't charge you income tax on it because you're not making enough money for them to take taxes. So the money that was withheld on your paycheck up to that nine grand, they'll actually give back to you as a rebate. If you make 20 grand, only the money from 9,000 to 20, and again, these are just arbitrary numbers to, to show what we're talking about, only the $11,000 difference between the 9,000 and the 20,000 are taxed at the bottom rate. That's like the first tier. And they'll only tax at say 5% or 7%. And then as you make more and more money, not the entire amount of money that you pay, just the segment that exceeds the past bracket is taxed at a different rate. And that's what they mean by tax brackets. So if you make $50,000, and the, the highest income bracket starts at 36 to 50, you're only paying the highest income tax bracket on that last. And I mean, somebody can correct me in the comments or something if that's completely wrong, but that's all I've paid. And I've, I've had my audits several times. <laughs> oh yeah, I got audited this year and I didn't know anything cause I didn't make that much. <laughs> it's like you owe zero. It's like, cool, thanks for the letter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, a big point of note, though, is like the end of the day, though, all the taxes that the family paid are closer to 41%. And that's a dramatic difference between the 13% we're collecting from income tax and look at all the complications surrounding income tax and the inefficiencies and its stated purpose and preambles aren't achieving the goals they set out for themselves from the onset of their being implemented. And that's verifiable in the income disparity that we can see and measure today. So it's not really open for dispute. People who are disputing income disparity as an issue are usually taking claims that aren't related to income tax. Right. Like you get a lot of people talking about how uh, billionaires shouldn't exist. It's like, well, what happens if inflation happens and there's no nothing but billionaires? Um, so that law that you made about having no billionaires, all of a sudden it's like, well, everybody goes to Gulag, I guess. But um, the other side of that is, you know, they just, there's a lot of anger from the bottom. I know because I've been there uh, and I was angry. Um, but, and they, um, the, is just it's a it's a blind anger it's a it's not much to it you know tax the rich well this is a very simplistic uh way of looking at it and you essentially what they should have been saying was tax the rich the same rate that we're taxed that's what they should have been yeah. saying the whole time well i think that's Instead what a lot of people are saying well, and then you get equity people are saying tax the, tax them uh, tax them more because they're you know to get them to pull the people that are behind them up. But if we tax them equally, or if we you know, uh, but then there's the other side. Uh, you don't get rich by paying money, so the, there's always going to be a loophole. There's always going to be something. So. But to me, that's just is... a great great depression mentality, the, the mm -hmm. savers thing, because if the government on yes. one hand is trying to stimulate inflation through pricing their overnight lending rates through the Bank of Canada or, or the Federal Reserve in the States, the central banks are, are 
outwardly trying to stimulate inflation for growth, they're telling people not to save. So they, they can't on one hand say, oh, consumers don't have enough personal savings to cover bills. And then say, on the other hand, we're going to make your savings worth, worth less if you don't spend it today. Right. So you're forcing people to have to put money into investments. And investments, no matter where you get them, are inherently risky. There are some that are more risky than others, but they don't, you know, they'll pay you more. And the ones that are less risky will pay you less. Like bonds. <laughs> the tax code, yeah, the tax code right now will favor people who are investing in things that are safe. So their money's not growing very quickly. And basically the money they get from uh, investment interest earned or income from their investments offsets the price of everything rising, which is inflation. So you sort of break even, even though you're making money on it. But the people who are trading securities and making their living or tens of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars by trading vouchers and shares of companies, all they're doing is exchanging paper back and forth. They're not actually like physically making a hammer that's one day going to drive a nail and build a house. They're not, that's what I mean by productive labor. They're not creating value in the system. They're right. Just they're just the extracting value, value from the system. So the companies will rake in money from their consumers by charging them enough to make a profit. And that profit is distributed amongst a bunch of people who are trading vouchers for companies. And then they're paying capital gains taxes. So only half of that income is taxed. What you're doing is you're fully taxing the person who's buying the item. You're fully taxing the people who are working to produce the item. And you're fully taxing the people who are regulating the taxation of, of these companies. But then you're giving a tax cut to the people who make the most money in the entire process, doing the absolute least to contribute to it, um, sustaining itself. That's sort of the flaw with the way our system is working right now, that consumption tax aims to correct. It aims to correct this by saying, okay, earn as much money as you want. You get to keep it all. You'll be really rich and you can be really happy. But as soon as you spend it, you're going to start helping the economy or the, the country that way. That'll be your taxation. And so one of, one of the prevailing ideas of uh, the fair tax is there are, I, I don't want to call them disingenuous because they're probably just ignorant. Like they just don't know better, but there are people pushing the fair tax as a, as a method of escaping more taxes. Like the fair tax itself, like the label that they used for one that they keep promoting with, uh, what did you say that guy's name was? Linder? John Linder? John Linder, yeah. Yeah. So like he's made some statements. I actually had to write them down because they were so obtuse and I wanted to share them with you guys. So this guy actually wrote a book called The Fair Tax Book. Like he's thought very clearly about it. And from the onset of his, uh, um, from his uh, presentation, he, he, I don't know, comic, he comically admits that he's never had, he's never been able to speak for 30 minutes to a crowd. He prefers questions because he doesn't have enough to say about something he's written a book about and pr proposed to government 15, 20 times year after year. To me, that shows, uh, you know, you don't know your what you're talking about. Yeah, that uh, to me is a red flag for malicious intent. Actually. Yeah, usually I when I teach, corrupt, uh, but we usually when I teach rhetoric and, you know, oral skills, uh, you know, the first thing you have to do is know what you're talking about, because you can if you. If you understand, if you actually grok your entire, you know, thing you're talking about, mm -hmm. you will talk forever. <laughs> right. And you'll have to rein yourself in from digressions like we right. do constantly. <laughs> 
Yeah, we're so, pretending. We don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> or, yeah, I'm just good liar. That's all. Really good. So um, he does propose some things I'm in favor of. So like a monthly prebate for basic essentials. And that's money that gets sent to households before they even spend it, knowing that they're going to have to buy food. So I think everybody in our country as rich as ours should be able to afford food. And a good way of doing that is a prebate because they're going to pay sales tax on the food they buy. So give them money before they have to buy food. Right. If you want to misspend it or do something else with it, whatever. So how is this different from a, um, what's that Yang's thing? I'm forgetting the word. Oh, the the universal basic income. Yeah. The thing they tried in Dauphin. Uh, The UBI is different in the sense that it just gives money away and doesn't, doesn't change the way it's collected. So if you give everybody a universal basic income, all it's going to do is make all of the prices for absolutely everything rise relatively to it. Right. So because there was when you that... have more money, you have more demand and then. Okay. So it's like that. I, well, we were watching that show, Mr. Robot. And at the end, spoilers, by the way, uh, <laughs> everyone in the world gets like a million dollars or everyone in America. And I'm just like, that's a good way to erase like a bunch of money from, cause everyone <laughs> just got the, everyone just went up here. So now everyone's still at the same curve. The curve just moved up. Yeah. It's and... a shift in the curve. They call it. So, so... Uh, but it's not productive because it just means bread's going to be $10 instead of $2. So now you're paying relatively more anyway, because percentages are still the same. Your taxation is still exactly the same. Everything's just more expensive. And it's a stupid way of looking at the world too, because giving people a basic income like that does nothing to help them help themselves it does absolutely nothing to help their ability to earn productively or contribute gainfully so is this different than something like um a grain dole or food stamps uh where you give away people so here's a voucher for food you can go to any food place and get food with this or a grain dole which is an ancient thing uh where um i'm specifically thinking about um like uh, rationing and stuff like that. Right? No, more like um, the the Romans used to do it, where you know it was a big political issue about two thousand years ago, where you know feed the people of Rome, increase the grain dole, so the poor people have more food, so they can you know do and Work be more, more. productive. Yeah. <laughs> so the populares, um, it's literally just like for the people and the optimates, you know, the aristocratic faction we're always arguing over a grain dole it's like oh the poor people should be you know it's the same argument but he like politics never changes um basically and the um that is a simplistic way of looking at it historically but it does serve our purposes because the grain dole is essentially like uh you could become a great person in rome by increasing the grain dole getting the grain to the people um and a lot of people made their political careers with this so feeding the people um Mm. which in as things go for self-serving um acts of aggrandizement that's not a bad one (laughs) so uh no that's sort of how we want politics to work right we want people to get popular by being good to the people that's yeah. why we want them to be elected and everything. But oh no, you- he opened a factory and now we all have jobs and now there's you know businesses popping around to serve all those people for the they have jobs. Oh <laughs> shucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's weird though because when you start 
getting into specifics about like where you can and can't spend it, you're falling into the same trap we're trying, or not you, but the people who are, are discussing it are ignoring the same trap that they're trying to avoid through income taxes, having all these specific, well, that's considered a food supply. That one's not considered a food supply. Uh, you can't transfer your, your, your food stamps, let's say, um, or maybe because you're getting a food stamp, the closest supplier of food is going to raise its prices or, you know, there's all types of different well, ways people get, are going to manipulate. Yeah. That and you get system. lobbies like um, say the vitamin lobby or something uh, tries to get their, uh, their products labeled as a food stuff so that they can be counted mm-hmm. in that. And then cigarettes is like, yeah, you consume cigarettes. Therefore it's, but now you know, we're a spiritual good. Right. So now you can't tax us because it's part of my religion. It's yeah. that that gets really prickly. Whereas yeah. if you just have a consumption tax, tax on all things you consume, wh- whether it's medication or, and then they, they can fix it later, but they can do it through this, the, the vendor as opposed to through the individual. So instead of having all these people submitting tax, re- tax pages and pages of refer to column 402 and then enter from box 108 to, you know what I mean? Like all this complicated scripture we've got, you, you can just by doing it at the point of sale, by sending the tax that way, you at least give the people the opportunity to save their money first, as opposed to um, the other way where they take it ahead of time and then say, oh, at the end of the year, we'll get back to you. Don't worry. Well, people who can't afford two or three hundred dollars waiting an entire year to get back money they rightfully earned in, in excess of that that amount is just unfair to me. And I say that, you know, you don't like the word fair, but <laughs> I think it's just, you're on mute. But um, I don't like the word to- fair when it comes to, uh, you know, abstract things that you haven't defined. Um, now, with regard to inanimate objects that are for sale, fair is a good way to put it because everything is equally taxed. Well, everything is treated as a consumptive object fairly mm-hmm. um uh, rather than like uh you know having some moral relativism it's like oh no you committed murder it's like yeah but he was a nazi <laughs> <laughs> it's like still still murder it's um still murder yeah <laughs> but this is like well this is a this isn't a consumptive good no you still buy it and therefore it's something you consume and therefore tax um so uh, so th- this guy, uh, Linder too, he, he also goes into things that are just, you know, verifiably false and he promotes them as if he doesn't know any different. And this is sort of why I wanted to call him out by name because he wrote a book on something and, and he, he says things like, uh, wealth is in the middle class. You can't make 2% of the population support 98% of the population, but something like half of all equities, like all valued assets, which the government is telling us, don't save your money in a savings account. Don't just hoard it. You should reinvest it. Well, the fact is there's like 10% of Americans own all of, or not all, but they own half of the entire investment market. So not only do they own half of the assets in the market, the people who move markets, who set prices, because prices change as you buy and sell something, the people who have the capital behind them to move it, they actually change the price themselves by buying and selling. So if they coordinate their efforts and they call this like, you know, a collusion or whatever, like the actual term for it, 
But mutual funds do that. Like that's why politicians try and get the backing and they do it unabashedly. They just go, yay, the police department or the fire service of Chicago or, you know, they're proud that they get the backing of like CAW unions and stuff like that. And that's the reason why <laughs> it's the money behind it. And the, um, the pressured vote of the union members or subsidiary companies or people who are involved in the industry or the sector who would stand to benefit from it, they'll be the ones that speak out and promote it. Right. But what they're, what they're capable of doing legally to me is egregious in the sense that it gets around it side skirts income tax and it's its intentions um, for all intents and purposes directly and implicitly on purpose its focus is to avoid paying taxes and that's not that's not circumscript or you know a hidden reality that they move companies offshore to Ireland for a very specific purpose, not because the island is convenient, but because it's a tax shelter or the Isle of Man or the Cayman Islands or. Ireland did that on purpose because they knew that their economy wasn't going to have a, wasn't poised to do anything other than be part of the British economy. So they made themselves a tax haven. Yeah, and it looks great to be doing on okay for it. <laughs> flooded in when the money flooded in, the whole country was super rich, and property value soared. And then people started buying mortgages of uh, Irish properties because the values were soaring. And it just snowballs; it goes out of control until you have a financial crisis. Well, it happens and, in Alberta every once in a while. No, it happens everywhere in the world, though. It's just yeah. <laughs> the big examples are like Alberta is Canada's sort of tax shelter. Um, Quebec is where we tax the most, and everywhere else is somewhere in between. Whereas in the States, they've got, um, I think even some of their territories are tax shelters, but I'm not sure about that. But for sure, they have like the Cayman Islands is a common one. Uh, Delaware is a common yeah. one. Um, this would be a good place to let us know more about the details in the comments. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, action. So, But for this guy to say something like, we shouldn't make, we can't make 2% of the population pay for 98% of the pop, it's just flat out false. And the reason it's flat out false is the, the middle class is already paying the bulk of the taxes. That's verifiable because the money that is stuck abroad is not being circulated here. It's going to world markets. So it's going to real estate in Hong Kong. And then when Hong Kong gets, um, you know, invaded by China for all intents and it goes and we're demonetized Australia or something. You know what I mean? Like it just looks for a stable place during crisis. And then once there's, there's a balloon or a bubble, they want to be first in the bubble and last out before it pops. That's mm-hmm. how you make money, but that's not a productive contribution. And that's where the vast majority of all of the wealth of all of the nations in the world, it lies there. Everybody else just has crumbs. So we're not talking about 2% of people who earn, you know, $2 million. Now we want them to pay out, a million dollars. That's not even what we're talking about. We do want them to pay out a million dollars, but we want the people paying to or who earn 250 million to pay something. Like they have, they have orders of magnitude more capital than people realize they even have. And we're trying to protect their rights to secure it for themselves as if like, Oh, well, if, I make a billion dollars. I don't want the government coming after me. If you earn a billion dollars, you should be able to pay taxes and earn a billion dollars. Like if you're right. that valuable or your your contribution is that sincere, like 
There should be so, no reason you can't make more money. It doesn't mean you don't have to be taxed on it, though. Now, let's pretend. Let me put on my fat cat hat. Yep. I don't have one. I wish I had a hot top hat right now. But um, I put on my fat cat hat and I say, well, if I'm going to pay, if I make uh, $2 billion this year and I'm going to pay uh, and I need to pay 10%, so that's uh, you know $200 million, um, Yes. Uh, you know, I'm not good at math. I have people do that for me. Um, <laughs> got, still got my fat cat hat on. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, if I'm contributing more, I should have more say. So I want to, if I'm paying this much, I want to, you know, I want, I, I want, if you're not giving me kickbacks and stuff, then I want influence. So I want, you know, uh, I want to be, in on all the governmental discussions. So I'm going to say that, you know, I should be consulted on community matters in this city or something because I'm paying for it. So I might as well get what my taxes are paying for. And sometimes every once in a while, you see an example of this working, I guess, where it's just like some guy just builds a bunch of schools because if I'm going to build my tax money, if I'm going to pay my tax money, I might as well go to what I want. And then they, it's all mm -hmm. of a sudden there's just a bunch of schools everywhere. And you're just like, well, that wasn't so bad, but generally it doesn't end up like that, you know. That's just is like medical science in, in the Victorian England age where yeah. they, they put leeches on people's heads and said like, oh, look, your your headache went away. It must be because of the leeches we put on your face. Right. <laughs> but you're thinking it's like, well, I want to have, uh, so if I'm paying taxes to have this happen, then you're going to give me something because, you know, I didn't get rich by giving money away. Mm -hmm. So, uh but where the when argument that, falls apart is when they want tax money so that they can help build a new stadium, for right. example. But they like, say everybody yeah. should have games and we want entertainment. But well, the, the, it's the, not like the league would fall apart if they used a smaller stadium. Like Those types of arguments don't stand <laughs> but the then, test of logic when you look at scale. Right. Know? But then, like, to finish my example there, it was the guy would say, uh, I want that, that section rezoned for a golf course not for, you know, this or that. And so you, I'm paying my taxes. I gave you lots. I should have that. And this does happen. You know, we, the, 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 the people in power, uh, you know, municipal power, uh, cave to such things um, because no one else is talking um, because everyone's busy with their heads down. Now I, I'm, yeah. So that, that example to me, though, is everybody should have equal access. We should all, if we are willing, we should all have that say. So it shouldn't be restricted to the people paying. It should be all right. people who pay tax have an right. equal share. We all pay equal say, but like you say, but my, my thing is equal. But the thing is that like we have a zoning thing uh, and these people want a public park because, you know, this area does need a public park, uh, let's say. Uh, or a outreach center because that specific municipality has a lot of poverty or homelessness or um, suffering from a, you know, a drug war rebuild or something and um, or just got hit by something and they need to, you know, everyone's saying, well, we need, we need to, you know, hire, uh, you know, people to help rebuild and, and we need the community needs this as a whole. But then, you know, some guy comes in and says, well, I paid the most taxes out of all of you. So, and I want a golf course and mm. I'm going to run the golf course. So I'm going to do that. And the, the response to that, though, is very simple. That person can enjoy the security of holding their wealth 
in a country that doesn't have Zimbabwe's inflation and where we don't have terrorism and we don't have because of the taxes they pay. So yes, you pay more as a numeric basis, but for Mm -hmm. the luxury of being the richest person in the world, like it's not like we're taking all of your money. You're not poor. If you can afford to pay 200 million in taxes, it's because you made $2 billion, like $2 billion. It's just a number to some people, but that's literally a skyscraper. And if you wanted to like house people inside office buildings, that's 56 stories tall. You could house with $1 billion, thousands of people. So like right. we're talking about one person, oh, poor me, I have to pay 200 million in taxes. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who weren't able to make more money because this person made $2 billion in one year. And they right. made it by doing something like trading securities, which aren't productive labor. And they're being taxed less on it already. And they're bitching about not or getting taxed too much. Yeah. So but we're only talking like 13% of their income. Like nobody's hurting from 13%. It's that big number at the end, the 41% when you, when you add it all up, your sales tax, your property tax, your income tax, your duties and imports, and you know, your tobacco and luxuries, when you add them all up together. So the simple thing to do with the consumption tax would say as an argument is if you want to live in a country where you're free to make that much money, if you're worth that much money, like if you actually contribute that much productivity to the, to the economy, rather than assuming that their, their tips, their $5 here and there, when they, when they go to go out for lunch is somehow magically supporting the economy with trickle down, you, you, we should be considering like that guy should want to park in another area of town, even if he doesn't um, use it. Or like that, the community facility, uh, the drop-in centers, or whatever. Yeah. Even if it's some, not in their neighborhood, because it's like me paying for roads, even <clears> though <throat> I don't drive. I still want to live in a city that's not some derelict shithole that doesn't have roads. Yeah. I want to live in a city where somebody has the opportunity to drive to me. Just I shouldn't. I shouldn't up. want to live in a city where I feel the need to, like. It's like you walking down the street going, man, I wish we had concealed carry in this town. Yeah. Shouldn't have to do that. <laughs> like gated communities are a great example. In Mexico, everybody's house has got a gated fence and fucking broken glass across the top and guard dogs outside. Like it's a nasty way to live with your neighbors when you have to fear from them constantly trying to take what's yours because you didn't pay taxes on it and they can't afford food. On the other side of that is that if you're an employer and you make the community that your business is in, even if it's just like a meat packing plant and you make the community better, well, then you have better employees who are not going to be as tired and going to be more efficient. You're investing in your own, in your own thing. If you're playing a long game, (laughs) play it properly. (laughs) Yeah. So the argument comes down to scale. When people don't think of actual numbers, when they don't realize that, yes, he paid 200 million because he made 2 billion, knowing how much money $2 billion is, is really important. And it's not something that's emphasized when anybody has this discussion. They talk about like marginal percentage rates, like the gross income that you should have got based on your hourly wage and the money you actually got taken home. Right. And they compare those ratios to people who are really wealthy. Like Warren Buffett said, his, his, his secretary paid more in tax than he did. He's talking on a relative basis. Yeah. But all the other thing, and I think I mentioned this before, but I, I, I brought you, something you said brought it back up, was that um, two, $200 million 
paying taxes, or if I make 20,000 a year and I have to pay $2,000. Now, at the lower end of the spectrum, after a certain amount of money, uh, you can easily, you know, get shelter, food, water, all that stuff you need. And after a little more money, um, then you can have, you know, any luxuries you want. But then anything after that, you like, it takes a certain amount of money, you know, uh, the cost of living. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if I'm at 20,000 and I have to pay 2000, that 2000 is going to be a harder hit. It's a, the, the relative value of that 2000 to a billionaires, 2 million is that 2000. I have to make that go a lot further than that guy's 200 million. Uh, because, you know, I, once I buy the food, I don't have another, you know, couple million dollars left over. Uh, yeah. I have that to... perfectly describes the law of diminishing returns in economics. Yeah. So there's a baseline oh, principle <laughs> that everybody sort of agrees with. I've never heard, I mean, I could be wrong, but I've never heard anybody contest it. That if you get one ice cream cone on a hot day, you really, really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. If you get two, you'll, you'll really enjoy two still. But the second one's not nearly as much benefit as the first. But if somebody gave you 10 ice cream cones, and then they're all start leaking all over you. And it starts to cost you money to clean up your clothes with ice cream you're not even going to eat. That's what the law of diminishing returns sort of gets at. Whereas um, in the beginning, like the the first bit of money you get is more valuable to you. So like you were saying, $2,000 to somebody who only makes 20 is a huge difference between somebody um, that and somebody who can afford to pay 200 million in taxes. Because what they come away with after their basic needs are met are vastly different. Right. Like not even relatively close to each other. They are vastly different. One person can't afford to travel somewhere unnecessarily. And the other can afford to buy a plane that can travel every day of the year constantly and have pilots and nurses on staff if they want. And you know right. what I mean? Like you so, can be an independent country for two for a hundred million dollars. You could float out to the middle of the ocean and just set yourself up on a big freighter sh- container, and you can have your own laws and declare yourself a nation if you want. Well, and as a society, um, if someone has to pay, you know, they they don't they they working hard and they all of a sudden some catastrophe happens, and you know that two thousand dollars would have really helped. Um, uh, but then if a billionaire falls, we're all like that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> like you could have saved or something you could, have, but no, you, you needed two masseuses on your plane <laughs> instead of one, but like, we don't really have much sympathy for that, but it's a lot of that is um, because after, you know, how much do you want to make in the, I want to make enough so I don't have to worry about money, um, which the answer is enough. You know, after that, it's just gravy. Like, if I don't have to worry about money, I can, that's a lot. It's, it's not a lot of money either. Um, it's, it's, it's changes from place to place. It is very relative, like, um, enough in Winnipeg or Edmonton is different than, you know, enough in Vancouver or Montreal. Uh, but if you aren't worrying about money, you're in a, or if you're just over the line of not having to worry about money, you're in a lot the stress goes down. You can, you can look at things clearly. You're not panicking every other day. It's, mm-hmm. 
it's it's nice but after like if you're two million dollars beyond that then uh yeah it's the diminishing returns you're so used to having the money that it's like oh no right what they're not considering too when they when they go into that type of thing is the ramifications like the aftershock effects Mm -hmm. like in, in that example of getting a park or um you know proper nutrition for your employees and things like that the what we're not considering is a huge part of our taxes go to paying for for public health and if people are eating better they're costing the public health system less if they're eating better, they're more productive. So they're making the business more money. Like in right. theory, I'm not saying every single case of every single person, they work harder because they're better fed. But on aggregate, when you look at like, you know, tens of millions of people, that's what happens. Right. And if, and if it doesn't, then you've got a systemic problem with your labor force. Like it I should can't. just work that way if you don't have dysfunctional labor. I can't remember who said it best or who said this, but like healthcare and education are the uh places where your investment investment gets the most bang for its buck yeah Uh, and like because you invest in healthcare and people just get healthy and they can do more education it's the same where people will make smarter decisions because you know they're 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 used to thinking they know the data that they need they're like oh wait yeah, and they contemplate consequences better. And so they be more creative. Invest the money better. They're less reliant on the system. They can help themselves without having to like find a resource to help them. Mm. Like all these type of um, right. And the greater pool you have of people like that, the greater pool you can choose from. To I need a creative guy to make the next product for my business. And somebody comes up, it's like I got this idea. But instead of like two guys coming in with good ideas and a bunch of things, you have. 30 guys coming at you with great ideas mm-hmm. and this is awesome. Like that's what we need in our society. Yeah. Even so, if you don't take them all, they're still developing ideas off of each other too. Yeah. So it's not even just about the final output. It's about the whole progression, progression towards that outcome yeah. th- that we want. Even if 30, even if 29 of them are bad ideas, you're more likely to get a good idea out of a larger pool then, you know, out of a, you know, pool of three where, you know, every year you get three guys that have a good uh, new idea. It's like three duds, three duds, three duds. You're going to be waiting like 10 years before that one guy comes along instead of assuming every... somebody doesn't else beat you to the punch and then you got to scrap it entirely and start right. over. So well, one of the other, sorry, I just <clears throat> wanted to get back yeah, to something you, you were talking about somebody um, who your, your fat cat hat, who had tons of assets and wealth and everything, right? Yeah. One of the other things that I think people don't take into consideration, and this falls on the other side of the argument too, like I'm not actually supporting my claim for um, uh, consumption tax with this. What I'm saying is I'm deferring again to say that the data we're using are incomplete or misinterpreted or misleading outright. So talking about a person's net worth is usually based on the inflated prices of the equity markets. Those equity markets value stocks based on who's willing to pay what for them. And if mutual companies, mutual fund companies are like huge investment funds or sovereign wealth funds like the Saudi princes or something, if they decide to pour a bunch of money into Tesla, that that affects the price of Tesla. So to say that Elon Musk has a net, net value or like being the richest man in the world or whatever right now, but first of all, what is he doing with his money? Is he, I mean, he buys nice things, but he earned it, right? But <laughs> Yeah, but he's risking all of his wealth to better humanity as well. So part of it 
you want him to not get taxed on the money he's spending trying to contribute to humanity, only on the luxury goods he buys for himself personally and privately, right? Mm-hmm. Which he actually does a pretty good job of where a lot of, um, well, especially Wall Street, um, they look at you like you're stupid if you pay taxes because you don't have to. Why would you? Yeah, I remember. Like, there, there's a culture of not paying taxes in I remember uh, I was on break once. This is a weird story. Uh, and I was talking to this one girl and she was, and I was saying how it's like, oh, I'm paying for school. And she looked at me like I was an idiot, like, because I was paying for my school. Only rich kids pay for their school. It's like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, and it's, I didn't understand the concept because I was getting a service and I was paying for the service. And that weird culture of like, well, you got to go get grants and you got to go get this and that. And I was just like, I applied for a bunch of them. I was too old and maybe too white. And I didn't <laughs> <laughs> like, I, di- I didn't have any. Uh, you weren't marginalized enough. Yeah. Or something <laughs> like that. And, you know, somebody might be like, good, but like, still paid for it. I still got through it. But like that whole idea of like, why would you pay for school? It's like, what? (laughs) Yeah. I think uh, I was one of those people that said that I just never heard of it. (laughs) Yeah. I was just, uh, cause I was, I, I, when I was young, maybe I read too many books where it's just like, don't buy anything you can't afford. Um, and, uh, I don't like being in debt. If I owe someone money, I'll try and pay them back. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, it's, I know, that's just how I work. But um, but the system's working against you because it's, it is. Built, and, it's built and structured to leverage your assets. So if you have something of worth, of value, you put it in something that you're allowed to multiply your debt from. So you right. can secure a debt of $10,000 based on $5,000 you have in assets. Then you take that 10000 hypothetically and try and make it into 15000 and then pay off your debt later with the money you make. Right. So now Visa can use all that money I leveraged. Yeah, to, exactly. For my future. And then their and business like, gets to grow with you as a subscriber. So, so people like get a, get a credit card. And I'm like, no, it's like, so what you're telling me is like, give Visa some money. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to use my money the way I want to buy what I want up front. And then I own it and then I can use it. Yeah, there is a way to use Visa so that you never pay anything, but there are so few people doing that that they can get away with it without worrying. Yeah. They're giving people annual percentage rates and they're compounding it daily. Like, how how is that even close to fair? In any reasonable sense, if I said, hey, borrow, lend me a hundred bucks, I'll give you $110 in two weeks. If you then said, well, it's 101 the first day, 101.1 the second day, 102.3 the next day, 103.7 the next day. Like that. nobody would do that. That's retarded. That's not at all reasonable. But that's what the they, that's what the uh, credit card companies do. And and payday lenders get around it by not incorporating the daily compounding rates and charging fees instead of interest. Oh, because they charge an Western illegal Union. amount of interest, they'll just charge you a flat fee instead. Cash How store. does that benefit the economy? I, it's like a good sign that your neighborhood's not in a good shape when a Western Union or a cash store or a payday loan place shows up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and especially if it's right next to the liquor store. Why doesn't the government run them? If they are a necessary part of an, an economy where people just have unexpected bills that they need a rush loan for, why doesn't the government make money on that so that they can tax people less so you have less poor people needing payday loans? Right. And they, they can have like, like realistic uh, 
interest rates on those. Yeah. Like, why should somebody who doesn't have any money be allowed to issue credit to hundreds of thousands of people, earn millions of dollars in fees and interest, and then just pay back their debt at the end of two weeks? They never own the money they're lending out. The None of these banks have the government running, running the, oh, shit, I screwed up. Uh, yeah. But like a lot of them are used for like, I Birthday don't know the numbers, presents. but they're used for very uh, irresponsible things and they rely on that because it's legal. Um, I think at, unless there's anything you want to say quickly, I think we should take a bit of a break and oh, then yeah, I forgot when, about we, that. Um, when we get back, we'll talk about, we'll get into the nitty gritty of the uh, fair tax consumption tax stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'll go over a little bit of uh, Joseph Salerno who likes to, uh, who likes to talk about the myth of the fair tax is the name of his book. Yeah, but, uh, we'll get into that and Ludwig von Mises quotes and all of that kind of good stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll see you in part two. And thanks for watching. Come back.